please join me in the prayer for illumination. Send your spirit among us, O God, as we meditate on your love. Prepare our minds to hear your word, move our hearts to embrace what we hear, and strengthen our will to follow your way. This we pray through Christ our Savior. Amen. And I'm reading this morning from Psalm 27, verses 7 through 14. And if you want to follow along on your, with, in your pew Bible, it is on page 503. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. Come, my heart says, seek his face. Your face, Lord, do I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You who have been my help, do not cast me off. Do not forsake me, O God of my salvation. If my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Do not give, up, give me up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they are breathing out violence. I believe that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the, the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. One thing Faye didn't mention is that I was actually married in this church about 15 years ago, and it's so lovely to be back here. I was just over in Plain, Washington this past week at a place called the Grunewald Guild, which is an art and faith retreat center. Uh, it's such such a wonderful place. If you are inclined toward the arts, I would, I would highly recommend it. But I'm just noticing all the beautiful things that are in your sanctuary and how beautiful this church is. So it's lovely to be back here. Uh, I would like to dive into our scripture this morning. We are in... The book of John and the disciple that I chose to focus on in this series of distorted disciples is Thomas. So we are going to be reading a bit about Thomas from John chapter 20, beginning with verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. 
So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The word of the Lord. Let me just say a word of prayer before I start. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word as it is revealed to us through the scriptures. We thank you for these examples of faith, even faith in the midst of doubt. Pray that your words will be in my mouth uh, and that you will open our hearts to what you would have us receive. In Jesus' name, amen. So if I were to give you a list of key words for this sermon, this is what they would be. I want you to listen to them and think about how these have been a part of your own faith journey. Faith. Belief. Doubt. Certainty. Hope and mystery. Let me read those one more time. Think of each of those. Faith, belief, doubt, certainty, hope, and mystery. So to, to drop a little deeper into the text before we start, this is probably a text that is very familiar to you. This is a, a classic Easter text, one that we've all probably read dozens of times. The backstory is that Mary Magdalene has just gone to the tomb and found the stone rolled away. She encounters who she initially thinks is the gardener, but turns out to be Jesus, who calls her by name and tells her not to touch him because he hasn't yet been to the Father. She runs back to tell the others and finds Peter and John, and they find the linen cloths and no body. Later that evening, they're gathered together behind locked doors. Did you get that part? They were behind locked doors. In fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus had just been crucified. There was a bunch of chaos. No one really knew what was going on. They didn't know the whole story. Jesus appears among them. Boom just right through the door. He greets them. Everyone is overjoyed and astonished. They think he's dead, but Jesus has come and appeared amongst them. He breathes on them and gives them the Holy Spirit and the power to forgive. 
Already there's a lot in this story that could be deemed unbelievable. Several of these things defy the laws of nature and physics. If you hadn't been there to see it yourself, would you believe these things? Well, it just so happened that Thomas wasn't there, and he didn't believe. He wasn't with the disciples that Sunday morning they found the empty tomb, and he wasn't there later that evening when Jesus appeared to several of them. Even before the crucifixion, most of the disciples had scattered for fear of losing their own lives. So let's back up a step and take a look at what we know about Thomas. We don't know exactly when Thomas became a disciple of Jesus, but it's possible that he traveled with Jesus for almost three years. That's a long time to be with someone. They, they knew each other pretty well at this point. We don't have the details of his initial calling, but know that he was part of the inner 12 that was called uh, during the Great Commission in Matthew 10. We see that Thomas shows up in John's Gospel story of Lazarus. I don't know if you remember that. Jesus gets news of Laz Lazarus's demise and tells the 12 disciples he wants to go back to Judea, a place where he was just nearly stoned to death. It seems there's some disagreement amongst the disciples whether or not th this is a good idea, but Thomas steps up and says, let us also go that we may die with him. The fact that this show of loyalty is recorded feels significant. Thomas is loyal to Jesus. It seems perhaps the author, who most think is John, wants us to know this character trait of Thomas. The next time Thomas shows up is in John chapter 14. I have to wonder if the author and Thomas aren't close friends the way that John speaks of Thomas. In this chapter, we find Jesus trying to explain the unexplainable to his friends. He's telling them in not so many words that he's not going to be with them much longer, but they shouldn't be troubled because he is going to go to prepare a place for them where they will be able to join him. Can't you just see the disciples scratching their heads? Thomas is the one who speaks up and says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Thomas wants a map. He wants directions. He's that kind of guy. Jesus responds here with something a little less concrete than Thomas might have been hoping for. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm sure that really cleared things up for Thomas. Overall, Thomas seems to be a pretty practical, logical guy. He likes facts. He likes things he can grasp. Can anybody relate to that? But there is something about Jesus that keeps Thomas coming back for more. He has devoted his life to this teacher who speaks in parables and seems to have a very mysterious connection to the divine. And when it comes to the resurrection, Thomas wants proof. And proof is what he gets. A week after Jesus' first appearance, the disciples are in the house again together. This time Thomas was with them. And Jesus appears among them in spite of closed doors. Did you get that part? The door was locked. Jesus didn't even knock. He just shows up. He greets the group. And then knowing that Thomas was doubtful, says to his friend, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Now remember, this is only a week after Jesus had been crucified. These aren't scars. These are wounds. 
These are open wounds that Jesus is inviting Thomas to put his hands into. What an intimate act. I don't want, when I have a wound, I don't want anyone touching it. I can barely touch it myself. But what an intimate thing for Jesus to say, Thomas, here, look at my wounds. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas responded, my Lord and my God. He knew. Jesus says to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed, which is all of us. A few things I want to tease apart from this passage. First of all, Jesus knew that there would be doubters. Jesus was human. He was friends with humans. Even among the 12, it's likely there were varying levels of belief in what Jesus was saying. It wasn't a clear-cut message that Jesus was delivering. Look at Judas, for instance. Seth shared with all of you about Judas. Look at Peter. These disciples were humans just like us. And they were navigating this landscape of the dawning of a new era in Jewish religious tradition. And they didn't have the luxury of knowing the whole story. They didn't have the Bible laid out in front of them. They didn't know how it was going to end. There must have been so much that was so hard to understand. Yet there was something compelling enough about Jesus that kept them coming back to him. Jesus didn't scold Thomas for his doubting. He didn't scold him. He welcomed him. He invited him close, close enough to touch those wounds. Put your fingers here. And Thomas's response is full of knowing and love and honor. My Lord and my God. When Doug and Seth and I met a couple of months back to choose the theme for this series, we landed on disciples as a theme, which evolved into distorted disciples. Thomas felt like an obvious choice for me. From a very young age, I remember having doubts, not just about faith, but about anything that couldn't be proven. I loved math. Math was really my thing because it had answers. I loved having a very clear answer for things. I was also raised in a brand of faith that had very clear answers. All of my questions had pat answers that could be proven by the Bible, and if I had any questions that couldn't be answered, well, I probably shouldn't be asking that question. As I was preparing this for this sermon, I was also watching a series of videos by Scott Erickson, who is the, uh, the artist for what is on your bulletin this morning. This is from a series of his called, um, oh, why am I blanking on it? We had the Stations of the Cross for Easter, and this is the Stations of the Resurrection. This is, I think, Station 8. Um, but you can see the fingers in the wounds. I just love this image. Anyway, Scott also has a series of videos uh, called Why the Church Needs Art. Um, clearly, you all have that mastered here and understand the importance of it. Um, but anyway, back to this. To borrow an idea that he uses in one of those talks, I was living in a system that required belief, which led to right behavior, which then led to belonging. This was the kind of church structure that I was raised in. You first had to believe, then you had to behave. Behaving was very important. And then you belonged. Any doubts I had surely meant that I was not trusting God enough. I was taught to ignore the doubts as if they would just go away. 
But unfortunately, like many things, like grief or anger, unexpressed doubt doesn't just go away. And for me, it created a lot of cognitive dissonance that was making me feel like I was splitting in two. Not surprisingly, and somewhat to the chagrin of my very conservative evangelical parents, my love for the concrete led me to studying the sciences. I started with an undergraduate degree in biology and went on to get a master's in forestry. At this point in my life, it was getting more and more difficult for me to defend this rigid, closed-minded faith to those who were deep in the zones of proofs and outcomes. I remember in particular having a conversation with another student, it was actually a first date, uh, who was in my department. He asked me, so you're a Christian? Already I was cringing. Yep, I am. I really didn't like where the conversation was going. So tell me what that means in a nutshell, being a Christian. Like, what do you actually believe? Well, I started, that was such a loaded question. I told them I believed we were all sinners and needed to be saved. And if, and Jesus was that savior. And I told them that God loves us and has a plan for our lives. And if we accept Jesus as savior, we all get to spend eternal life in heaven. And if we don't, Andrew cut in. I had never told someone to their face that I thought they were going to hell. Well, I guess we believe you go to hell. I hated this. I hated repeating these words. Is that really what I believed? But it's the responsibility of Christians to share the good news of Jesus so that no one has to go to hell. I was just grasping for something that made this make sense. So you think I'm going to go to hell and it's going to be your fault if I do. Andrew said, trying to gather all the data points he could to evaluate what I was really saying. And that's somehow supposed to be good news? Yeah, well, there's a lot more to it, I tried to backpedal. I'm, not just ex I'm just not explaining it very well. I hated having to justify perpetuating this brand of faith that I wasn't even totally convinced of myself. I knew all of the right answers, but I hadn't ever really been encouraged to ask my own questions. Was I evangelizing for a cause that hadn't really changed my life? I was putting the behavior ahead of the belief that was leading to my belonging. As I prepared for this sermon, I started asking people, people who identify as Christians, what their biggest doubts are about faith. What makes it most difficult to believe? Answers ranged from not being able to believe in the miraculous to not understanding how a God so big could love someone so small. Others found it hard to believe in the Trinity or question the need for the Trinity or felt that other Christians made it really hard to be a Christian. There were big questions like the virgin birth and the resurrection of Jesus. I spoke at Cordata last week and my father-in-law happened to be there and he's also a pastor. Uh, and he just had open heart surgery, and he said that he had he never had moments of doubt, but he, when he was lying on that table about to be opened up, he had that moment of wondering what really happens. He had felt so sure of it his whole life, and had told so many people how it happens when you die, but when he was laying there, it was a totally different experience. I struggle a lot with the reality of an afterlife if heaven and hell exist. 
If you haven't had any doubts in the Christian faith, I would be surprised. And there are actually no shortage of doubters in the Bible. Thomas was not alone. The Psalms are full of voices that cry out to God in complaint. Ecclesiastes is one man's struggle with the meaninglessness of life. The story of Job and his struggle through so much turmoil. Even Jesus on the cross cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is actually a quote from the Psalms. Jesus, join, Jesus himself joins in this chorus of human uncertainty. But perhaps you, like me, like all the doubters who have gone on before us, recognize that there is something that brings us back. There is faith, even if the size of a mustard seed. Matthew 17, 20, in Matthew 17, 20, Jesus says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. We hold on to that small speck of faith because we trust the mystery of God enough to live in the uncertainty of being human. Let me say that again. We hold on to that small speck of faith because we trust the mystery of God enough to live in the uncertainty of being human. As humans living the age of enlightenment and at a time when we believe science can prove or disprove anything, it's a challenge to engage with mystery. After years of battling the cognitive dissonance that came with being a scientist and being a Christian, I finally came to terms with the fact that I did not have to prove Christianity for it to be true. Perhaps it's no surprise that I gave up my career in science to become an artist. In his, in his book, The Sin of Certainty, Pete N. says this, Certainty is a sin because this pattern of thinking sells God short by keeping the creator captive to what we are able to understand. In an interview with Brene Brown, Father Richard Rohr discusses this quote, My scientist friends have come up with things like principles of uncertainty and dark holes. They're willing to live inside imagined hypotheses and theories, but many religious folks insist on answers that are always true. We love closure, resolution, and clarity while thinking that we are people of faith. How strange that the very word faith has come to mean its exact opposite. Faith, I would offer, is our ability to claim our belonging. Last year, our church had the opportunity to host a conversation with Jewish New Testament scholar Amy Jill Levine. During our time together, I asked her why it was that Christians were so obsessed with having the right answers. She said very bluntly that most Christians simply don't trust their baptism. Jews are Jews by birth, she went on to explain, so there's much less fear in losing any kind of relationship with God. What would it take for us to truly trust our baptism enough to risk our belonging? Thomas was willing to risk his belonging. He was part of this very elite group of disciples that had traveled with Jesus and been close to Jesus. But yet he spoke up knowing that Jesus was his friend and his Lord. What if we trusted Jesus so much that we were allowed that sense of belonging to inform our belief? and then shape our behavior. 
I would offer that this is a much truer picture of the gospel that Jesus came to, to proclaim. So what do we do with our doubt? We can't just hide it. I promise you, if, if you ignore it, it doesn't just go away. Like Thomas, I think we need to bring it to Jesus. Allow it to bring you closer into the goodness of God's mercy rather than drive you away. True faith is not the absence of doubt. In fact, I would argue that doubt is required to have any faith at all. If I were certain about everything having to do with God, we would, I wouldn't need any faith at all. I often feel that my faith is in equal proportion to my doubt. And what keeps the scales in balance is hope in the grace of God. As a church, or as a small group at, at First Pres, we're reading a book called Art and Faith by Makoto Fujimura. It's a wonderful book if you are interested in those sorts of things. And in his book, he says, when we encounter God in the darkest moments, really in the depth of our depravities and soul's death, we are given such a faith to believe our God. Despite what we see and who we are, despite how difficult the world gets, and faith given by grace will not fail us. I think doubt can move us in two directions, toward wonder or toward cynicism. And what determines the direction is our ability and willingness to embrace mystery and our capacity for hope. I love the Godly Play program. I know that you all do Godly Play here, too. I feel like it does such a good job of teaching our kids that sense of belonging, and it, it invites our kids to ask the question, what do you notice? What do you wonder? We need to turn our doubts into wonder. May we be people who invite one another into a sense of wondering about the mystery of the gospel. May we read the words of the prophets and the apostles and be in awe that the divine would choose to be in relationship with humans. May we thrive in knowing that mystery loves company. Let us allow our doubts and our worries and our uncertainties to draw us into the presence of Jesus and to be healed by his wounds. I dropped my poem. I, I got this from the... Um, Every day at the Guild when I was there, or every day during the summer, they do a morning matins and an evening vespers. And uh, at one of our morning, our first, our first evening, actually it was in our first evening, someone shared this poem by Mary Oliver, and I just thought it was such a perfect closing uh, to this. So let me share with you Mysteries, Yes, by Mary Oliver. Truly, we live with mysteries too marvelous to be understood. How grass can be nourishing in the mouths of lambs, how rivers and stones are forever in allegiance with gravity, while we ourselves dream of rising. How two hands touch and the bonds will never be broken. How people come from delight or the scars of damage to the comfort of a poem. Let me keep my distance always from those who think they have the answers. Let me keep company always with those who say, look, and laugh in astonishment and bow their heads. Let's pray. God, we thank you for allowing us to be healed by your wounds, allowing us to doubt, allowing us to have questions, allowing us 
the beauty of your mystery. Help us not to have to know all of it. We love you. We thank you for this church. We thank you for uh, the body of believers that goes so far outside the walls of this building. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.